All right, kids, if I could have your attention real quick. What if we took a trip to the woods and I told you that in that big forest, I've hidden for you a beautiful purple gem. And in that forest, you went and you went searching. You started to dig through all the leaves. You started to turn over every rock that you could find, but still no purple gem. My question for you is, how long would you look for it? How long would you go on searching? Would you go until you found it? What about if it started to get dark? I still haven't found the gem. Would you pull out your flashlight and keep on searching, keep on searching until you finally found it? Well, in our passage today, there's a man who's on a search of his own, looking for something really precious. His, his name is Joseph, and he's looking for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns. But he's been looking and looking, and he still hasn't found it quite yet. He thought he was on the trail. He thought he was about to find it, but he hasn't. The trail has run out, but he has faith to keep looking. He's going to keep looking. Even when the searching is hard, he knows he will find it there. God promised him that it was right around the corner. So, kids, pay attention to what I say about Joseph this morning and see, see if you can tell whether he finds what he's looking for or not. The crucifixion that we witnessed last week was gut wrenching. Three men suffering anguish and nearing death with Jesus bearing the wrath of God and atoning with his blood for the sins of the world. We saw jeering. We saw God's love displayed through Jesus in his warnings, in his forgiveness of the people that were killing him, and in his sacrifice for us. It was such a poignant moment that the creation was shaken as the sun's light failed for three hours. And we felt it in the violent tearing of the curtain in the temple. Luke says that the crowd went home beating their breasts in grief. They thought they were just spectators to some run-of-the-mill execution when the signs said otherwise. They found themselves watching the judgment of God on the one who knew no sin. And Jesus did suffer, but he didn't just suffer. He truly breathed his last, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in a fraction of a moment, Jesus was dead. And in this moment that we come to this morning in Luke, he's dead. All the crowds condemning voices, shouting, crucify him. All the mockery, all the questioning, all the commotion and the controversy and the weeping and the agony and the wheezing, wheezing and the chaos is over. It's over. Now, just that piercing silence of a vacated hill with a body hanging lifeless on a cross have you paid attention to that silence, that scene of hopelessness? 
Friends, I think, I think we'd all admit that we really like to skip to the good part. And I mean, who can, who can blame us? The resurrection is incredible and glorious. But this morning, we're going to get somewhat uncomfortable and stay in that silence for just a bit. You'll notice that there's not even, there's not even a dialogue in this passage. Nobody's talking. It is just simply watching what's happening after the commotion has ceased, after Jesus Christ has breathed his last breath. Chapter 24 is coming. We know that. But we need to pay close attention to the fact that our Savior died and somehow his body makes it to that fondly remembered tomb. But this morning is not just a matter of how his body got from point A to point B. It's about one man named Joseph and these women who followed Jesus all the way from Galilee. And I hope you'll begin to see that this passage has great bearing on whether you will strive to find the kingdom of God and hope amid darkness in the hardest moments of your life. Here's how I'd sum up Luke's purpose in the burial of Jesus. The Saturday after Jesus' death is a refuge for those who are losing hope in the promises of God. The Saturday after Jesus' death is a refuge for those who are losing hope in the promises of God. And I would just start by asking you, is that you? Some promise, all of the promises, have they become dim I think we have a lot to gain when it comes to drawing hope from the most hopeless moment in human history. It will help us when life seems upside down. A very long, long time ago, God promised the first people to ever live and to ever sin, Adam and Eve, that he would provide a child from Eve who would crush the head of that lying serpent, Satan himself. And for all we know, up to this point in Luke, Jesus was that one, that offspring of Eve, along with being the hope of Israel, the son of David, the Messiah, the prince of peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, savior of sinners, who is now dead. How deflating and discouraging for those who had gone all in on Jesus. Now what? We would do well to pay close attention to how Joseph and these women respond to the one who had promised eternal life and who did mighty works, but who seems to them, in their limited perspective, utterly powerless. The question is, was he powerless? I would ask you this morning about the dark moment you're in. Is he? Though Jesus chose to die, is he powerless? that leads us to our first point this morning. It takes courage to follow a savior who chose to die. I'm just reminded as Luke, Luke was sharing an encouragement and exhortation this morning, it's, it's a bit embarrassing to think that my trust is in this one who in this moment is hanging lifeless on a cross. It takes courage to follow a savior who chose to die. And this, this makes me want to say that I, I've never heard 
Jesus' burial specifically preached on or, or taught on in depth. And I was, I was a little lost this week, to be frank with you, with what all of this means to us. And someone who helped me a lot was an author named Gavin Ortland, and I'll include, I'll include the article that I read in the follow-up. But if you're reading that, you're going to see the connections. But it really helped clarify why in the world is this passage in Luke. And I'll tell you this much, it is no stepping stone or filler passage. For the first and only time in scripture, Joseph of Arimathea arrives on the scene in all four gospels right here after the crucifixion. Who is this other Joseph? He's not the Joseph who has a multicolored coat. He's not Mary's husband. So who is he? Well, we know from the text that he's a Jew from the town of Arimathea, which is just a neighboring town of Jerusalem. But he now lives in Jerusalem, or he seems to. Why? Because he's actually a member of the council, which is the Sanhedrin. He's actually one of these religious leaders, like the ones Jesus has have been, he's been confronting them all throughout Luke. He's not necessarily the person that you'd really expect to be here in this moment. But something's different about Joseph. The text says he's a good and righteous man. He is not like the others. He is not like the other religious leaders who were hypocrites. They were eager to get the praise of others. They thought they had it all figured out spiritually and they thought Jesus was a threat. A threat to what God was doing. Joseph was given the eyes of faith and saw Jesus differently than the other leaders. We, we say all of the time as we're reading through or talking about Luke, Jesus is right there in front of them. Can't they just see? And Joseph was given eyes to see the true Jesus. But how, how do we know that? How can we confirm that that's true of Joseph? Well, his, his actions prove that he was not following in the direction that the religious leaders were going. It says he did not consent to their decision and action. That is, their decision to kill Jesus and their efforts to trick him in something he said or to capture him. He's a good man who did not want this to happen. He was in the minority who didn't toast Jesus' death but loathed it. Could you imagine what what Joseph may have been getting himself into here? For the religious leaders, they were convinced that Jesus was a blasphemer of God and had to go. But Joseph thought he was the Messiah of God who had to stay. How do we know that? The Spirit through Luke tells us something crucial, not just about Joseph, but about his inner desire. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph was on the lookout for the kingdom of God. He had read scripture and had likely heard Jesus' teaching and saw things lining up. Jesus rebuked the Jews in John 5 saying, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Joseph had his eyes opened and saw that scripture was pointing to a person, a person that he needed to follow even when it was unpopular and even when he might lose every ounce of clout or reputation that he had. 
The only other people in Luke who are described like this are Simeon and Anna, who met Jesus when he was a baby. You like remember them from, from Luke 2. Simeon was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, who broke out in song when he saw Jesus. He knew that this was the Messiah that God had promised. Anna, likewise, began to give thanks to God and to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of, Israel, of Jerusalem. Simeon, Anna, and now Joseph were all cut from the same cloth of faith, so to speak. They looked to Jesus as their hope for deliverance and salvation, just like God had promised. Simeon and Anna sang and gave thanks, but Joseph has no song. He's not rejoicing because the person he had placed his hope in is dead. Can you imagine what level of despair like a wave might have come over Joseph? When your hopes are as high as they've ever been and they come plummeting to the ground. Maybe you know exactly what that's like. It's here where Joseph is different yet again, and this time, than the rest of Jesus' disciples. Where are the 11 disciples? John was at the crucifixion, at least, but they've gone. They've fled in their hopelessness. They've done what is easy for us to do, to forget all we know when the situation feels dire, to abandon promises, to shut God out, to turn to quicker solutions, to, like I often do, escape to something like a hobby or a show that's just plain easier to think about or to not think about. But Joseph hasn't run. He hasn't trusted his eyes in this situation. He chooses a different course of action. Listen, listen to what he does. This man, Joseph, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is really remarkable to me because Joseph is making a really hard choice. He could either rejoin the council the next time that they meet while secretly still trusting in Jesus, or he could side with Jesus here and now. He chooses to follow and honor Jesus even beyond Jesus' death. Joseph of Arimathea has counted the cost of following Jesus and has decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Joseph puts a face to that old song, which is a song of courage. The Gospel of John tells us that Joseph was afraid of the Jews. But Mark fills out the picture a little more, telling us that Joseph took courage to ask Pilate for Jesus' body. In fact, John tells us that somewhere along the line, Joseph is joined by another unlikely character, another religious leader, Nicodemus, who was also once a scaredy cat who came to talk to Jesus in the secrecy 
of the night. Imagine this religious leader who we've, we've seen in a certain light. We know that the religious leaders are blind to Christ. They're not heeding his warnings. But imagine this particular religious leader saying, I'm not playing games anymore with you religious leaders who have killed the hope of the world and the king of this kingdom I've been waiting for. I'm going to do what I know is best, which is to side with Jesus. Joseph doesn't say a word here, but his actions say, here I stand. And even though he's dead, Jesus is the one I'm going to side with. And then he rolls up his sleeves to humbly take our battered Savior's body off of that cursed cross. There is no ounce of pompous or self-interest in Joseph. He is concerned with the kingdom of God and he knows, he knows and it's proven by his actions that this is where I find it. I don't necessarily know what's next. I don't know how my hope will continue. And yet, humbly, he takes Jesus off of the cross. Trusting in Jesus is no cakewalk. I'll admit that that is super easy to say. But you have most likely felt that it's true in the moments when you're forced to choose between siding with Jesus or blending in, between having the tough conversation for the sake of reconciliation or saying in the back of your mind, it will, it will all work out, between risking the family fallout of boldly representing Christ or trying to maintain a shallow level of peace by not rocking the boat, between sharing Jesus with and loving the person that you are certain will fire back at you or just resolving to never be around them. It takes courage. God supplied spirit-empowered courage. And can we ask together this morning, oh God, give us courage. Give, give me the courage of Joseph of Arimathea because it took courage to do what he did. Now leads to our second point. It takes faith to act on a promise. It takes faith to act on a promise. Excuse me. It says, then he took it down, that is Jesus' body, and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Underlying these moments of silence and Joseph's actions, along with the women who are about to see, is a series of promises, some made by Isaiah, but also ones made by Jesus. He told his disciples that he would come and die in Jerusalem, but that he would rise again, Luke 9.22 being an example of that. Surely he wasn't just kidding. Surely he meant it. And I will act on it, says Joseph. 
When you cash your paycheck, aren't you expecting the numbers on that check to actually transfer into your account? Some of you teens are, are in volleyball and soccer right now. Aren't you counting on the score on the scoreboard to, to not suddenly go backwards, but trusting that it reflects the actual number of points that you've scored? It's not necessarily mathematical here, but when we hear God's promises and move ahead in faith, we're counting on that not changing. We're taking him to the bank, trusting his word. That's why I would be confident in saying that Joseph is still looking for the kingdom of God by burying Jesus because he's acting on promise, even in some specific ways. Joseph wanted to watch God fulfill his promises, but he's just a man. How can he see past the grief of Jesus hanging on a cross? How can he handle the broken body of the Son of God and wrap him in linen and still think that there's somehow more to this? Even just trying to put myself in Joseph's shoes, I feel like my arms don't work. I feel like the life is drained. I'm not sure what to do next, but I won't just run, not like the other disciples. Let me take care of his body, he says. Have you ever been right there, not knowing what in the world comes next? Well, let me get dinner going. Let me drag my weather-beaten self into church. Let me at least get out of bed. Work is the last place I want to be, but I'll go. Let me tell so-and-so. Maybe they'll pray with me. Those small, weary steps are acts of faith. And you're probably thinking, how is getting dinner ready an act of faith? Well, it's based on whether you think God is going to keep this world turning or if all is lost. Some of you know the very real experience of metaphorically or literally putting the gun down. And so long as that gun is down, there is opportunity to hope in the promise of Jesus. And pressing on in the power of the Spirit, because you may feel like your own strength has long gone away, Pressing on in the power of the Spirit is a tangible expression that your hope is not in yourself, but is in God. That's where Joseph was, pressing on with hope. I don't think any Christian in the room is under the impression that living between promise and its fulfillment is easy. Feels like no man's land. We've been promised glorious things for the future, eternal life, a new heaven and a new earth, seeing Jesus face to face, acceptance and acquittal at the judgment. But in the waiting, don't they seem far? We are in between right now. That's where we live. Jesus has come, died, risen, ascended, and you might feel in, in moments that this is a bunch of baloney. And I bet Joseph had a few of those moments of doubt and uncertainty too. The text does not say that. I have to admit that to you. But Joseph is human like us and you can nearly expect him to have these bits of, can, can this even be real? 
so we can read these verses and catch a glimpse of what today could look like. Even if it's not a day that feels bursting with hope, maybe it's a day spent clinging to a tiny shred of hope. How do we live? With faith? With purpose? With hope? How can we act the promises like Joseph did, even when all hope seems lost? What if I am fearful about things happening in culture and how they affect my job, my children, my future? What hope do I have when everything around me says Jesus is still dead? He is powerless. That's where scripture, by God's grace, spurs us on. Romans 8, 24 says this, now hope that is seen is not hope. That is not actual hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Have you had trouble hoping in the realness of God's promises to you because you can't see proof? I would say yes, absolutely. I want to see the proof. Do you have this sense that everything's falling apart? Stop for a moment. Take what your eyes see and weigh it. Okay, my hope is unseen. So I'm going to measure what I do see by what God says about it. Things seem out of control. Well, are they truly? This, this situation has brought nothing but chaos. But is it chaos? Or might it be a purposeful plan of God whose thoughts are higher than mine? This shouldn't be happening to me. What if God, who loves you very much, is somehow mysteriously working it for good? This is not a call to just look on the bright side. That is a cheap substitute for real promises. It's an attempt for us together and to help each other look to those promises, weigh what I see, and trust that God has a greater purpose and plan. I mean, think of where Joseph is right now, hauling Jesus' blood-stained body off to a tomb. All I know is this looks like it's the end. This looks like all really is lost. And yet, if, if Joseph can trust that there's something beyond, that's instructive for us. We can trust that there is something greater that maybe I don't understand right now, and that's okay. I'm going to rest in the fact that I don't understand this, but I know someone who is careful, who is loving, who cares for me, and who has a very particular plan ahead. Our hope is unseen, tucked away like Jesus' body in a tomb. And this is the Christian life where you are waiting right now, but your hopes will one day be confirmed because what came on Sunday for Joseph and what will come to us soon is proof that the waiting is worth it. Again, I would be confident in saying that Joseph is actually still looking for the kingdom of God by burying Jesus because, he, because of how he proceeds to act on predictions like that in Isaiah. 
He would likely be very familiar with these words from Isaiah 53, which no doubt many of you are very familiar with, about the suffering servant who would come and then would be given power by God to rule. That's something that we, if you just keep reading Isaiah 53, you'll see that suffering servant giving authority and power to rule and reign. But verse nine says this, and I like how, I like how this version puts it. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. This speaks to the innocence that that Steve pointed to a few weeks ago. Jesus was utterly innocent. And you see that in the fact that his, his body really was broken, torn apart as someone who had never sinned. And now that innocent man who has died is being carried off. It, to me, is, is kind of the depth of what we see that it took to pay for our sin. Jesus died like a criminal, and he was buried by a religious leader who was undoubtedly well off. Do you see the irony there? He was killed as a criminal, and yet a rich man is carrying him off. We know this because Matthew tells us that the stone tomb, which was an accommodation reserved for the wealthy, was actually the tomb prepared for Joseph himself. And again, trying to think of Joseph's decisions, I'm going to put him in my tomb. He deserves honor. He deserves gentleness in this moment. In fact, we can breeze by the fact that this tomb has never been used. You might think, well, aren't they only used once? Jewish custom in a heavily populated area was to put the body on a stone slab for a year. Let it decompose, then gather the bones to put in a box called an ossuary and place that box in a family burial site where space was limited. But this tomb hadn't been used. And that's not just a useless detail just like the donkey on which no one had ever sat that brought King Jesus into Jerusalem, he would exit Jerusalem and be placed in a rich man's tomb that had never been used, previously untouched and fit for a king. We can learn from Joseph here about taking the next step and trusting Jesus when all seems lost. But he's not the only one following Jesus to the bitter end. There are women who have followed him from the very beginning during his time in Galilee. We know from the other gospels that they at least included Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and the mother of James and John named Salome. They followed him, traveling all the way to Jerusalem. They watched him die, and now they are tenderly attending to his body. They have courage and faith as well because they followed him all the way to the end. And they will get the most unique privilege in all of history by being the first human eyes to witness Jesus' empty tomb. There's only one first sight of the empty tomb. But for now, Luke says, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and sat 
and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Friday was the day of preparation so that Saturday, the weekly Sabbath, could truly be a day of rest. So Friday was making arrangements for Saturday, a day of rest. However, the Sabbath began that Friday sundown, that Friday evening. So Jesus died Friday afternoon, meaning that these women, along with Joseph, had to quickly but respectfully take Jesus from the cross, wrap him in linen, and lay him in the tomb. However, the, woman, the women needed spices to put with the body as it decayed. But things happened quickly, so they made sure to go and see the tomb where Jesus would be laid and resolved to go and prepare those spices, get them ready, and bring them back once the Sabbath was over. Which would be when? Sunday. With the third calendar day since Jesus' death. Perhaps different than Joseph, these women had been with Jesus from very early on, and yet they followed. No doubt they wept for Jesus, who was their friend. But they were committed to not abandoning their hope. In fact, their hope was set enough to say, we can leave him now and take part in the Sabbath. I used to think, what are you doing? Forget the Sabbath, forget the law. Jesus fulfilled the law Just take care of his body. But you have to wonder if they had ringing in their ears this whole rising on the third day thing. Okay, we know nothing's going to happen today on the Sabbath. Let's go home. We'll go home, but we'll come back. I'm not saying it's a happy thing because that Sabbath must have been the worst Sabbath they've ever celebrated. Like I said earlier, we jump to Sunday, but what, what about the full 30-some hours of nothing? Just the reality of Jesus being dead. Pinch me, I'm dreaming. I can't believe this has happened. Some of you are quite literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death like a mournful Saturday. This morning is an invitation to peer ahead with those ladies. You've been promised a resurrection just like Jesus's. So, in the darkest valley, we trust our good shepherd whose staff comforts us and who will bring us into the brightness of a life without death. Gavin Ortland, in that article I mentioned, points out that it was Joseph's plodding faithful obedience that sets the stage for the most glorious moment of Christ's resurrection. He says this, friend, does the path of obedience feel to you dark and difficult? Are you in the midst of a long Friday night or a lonely Saturday of your own? Remember that the ultimate Sunday morning, the restoration of all things is still to come. Like Joseph, we don't know what God may do tomorrow with our efforts today. True obedience is never wasted. Who knows what glory might still be reverberating on the new earth a trillion years from now because of your difficult obedience today. Everyone in this passage was given faith to trust God after the lights went out, which gives me confidence in their God to say he is with me right now. Even after the lights have gone out or they're dim, 
and I can't see ahead. And guys, can I be honest with you? My biggest question this week as I read this passage is, what is this here for? I know that Jesus' burial is significant. I know he wouldn't be raised if he wasn't buried, but why not fast forward? And friends, God in his kindness did not fast forward so that we could see Joseph and three women show us what it looks like to trust a promise-making God in the pit of grief, to take the next step in hope of what is unseen, and to even just dare to believe that he would rise from the tomb that they laid him in. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we happily include the burial of Jesus Christ and the gospel message that should ooze from this church family. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, three to four, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scripture, and what? That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is Paul's gospel, and this is our gospel. We believe wholeheartedly that Jesus truly did die and stayed dead until the third day, proving that our redemption really was done and that he had the experience necessary to conquer death. But as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, consider the fact that the bread represents Christ's body, not just the baby who came in the flesh, and not just the one who was broken for us, but also the one who hung limp and lifeless and who was wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb by a real person, Joseph of Arimathea. He died so we could experience true and eternal life. But entering into the kingdom of God where Jesus is king is by faith. If you have not trusted in Jesus that he died in your place, this meal isn't for you. That said, we want to talk to you and pray with you if you want to walk through that open door Jesus has made into the kingdom by laying down his life for you. If you have trusted in Jesus imperfectly but sincerely, then this is for you. Here's what scripture says to you as a believer in Christ in Hebrews 10. Listen to this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You may have trusted in Christ yesterday. You may go to a different church, but if you've trusted in Christ, come and share this meal and let it build your hope in a kingdom that's coming.